Welcome to another episode of the Brown and Black Podcast. My name is Jack Rico. And I'm Mike Sark. And every week we take a look at race and pop culture through a brown and black lens. Happy 2023, Mike. 2023. Just this, the year, <laughs> sounds like science fiction. Let me tell you something. Go back and watch the Jetsons and go see what future things we already have today. It's crazy. 2023 just sounds like the future. You're right. And it feels like the future we're living in. You know, there are multiple plagues going on and there's fascism is rising. AI running rampant. It happening. Electric cars. Soon we'll have Uber <laughs> Air. And humans have not evolved. That's the problem. Brains haven't evolved. We're still as conflictive and unwilling to solve something simple as divisiveness. And just have some peace, man. Just have some peace. Like I said, I, I find it hard to consider where we, we are as humans. Are we really an advanced civilization? You look at animals and they, they treat each other. It's a system. And we, we have not evolved, unfortunately. Well, unfortunately not. Well, Mike, in today's episode, I'm very excited to kind of just get back to business here on the Brown and Black podcast and talk about one of the things that's still being talked about, which is the Golden Globes, but not specifically the award show, but Gerard Carmichael. And let me give you some context here before we go into Gerard Carmichael and some of the things he said in his monologue that for some reason didn't become prevalent all over the media. Going into this Golden Globes, I was having a lot of issues because of what happened last year when the Los Angeles Times did that investigation that found that the Hollywood Foreign Press Association had no black members. And never have. And never have, exactly. 87 of them, by the way, in its 80-some-odd-year history. And they were accepting expensive gifts in exchange for nominations, and everybody knows it. And everybody knows it. So I had decided that I was going to boycott this award show this year, thinking that everybody else was kind of going to think like me. I mean, look, WPIX here in New York, Pix11, had called me. I couldn't do it because of this other issue I had that same morning. But in my head, I was like, you know what? Better because I don't want to promote it. And then NBC News calls me and says to me, hey, can we talk about the Globes from a Latino perspective? And I'm like, damn it. You know what? There are a lot of leads and there are some good things about award shows on broadcast television. Damn it. I'm going to have to cave in here. Said some words. Latinos got some love during the award show. Jenna Ortega was featured heavily. Ana de Armas, Salma Hayek. Diego Calva, newcomer that was in Babylon. Guillermo del Toro won for Pinocchio. So it was decent. But it was the Gerard Carmichael monologue. Avery, they asked me to host the Golden Globes. I said, uh, you know, what should I do? And she said, ooh, Buki, I'm so proud of you. Now, remind me, which award show was that again? And I told her what the show was. And I told her about... Uh, how last year didn't air because of the no black people thing. And she was like, well, how much are they paying you? <laughs> and I said, well, Avery, it's not about the money. 
honestly. It's about the, the moral question of whether I should allow. And she said, Gerard, do you, enough all that. How much are they paying you? And I said, $500,000. And she said, boy, if you don't put on a good suit and take them white people money. And I kind of forget that, like, where I'm from, like, we all live by a strict take the money mentality. I bet black informants for the FBI in the 60s, like, their families were still proud of them. Like, they were like, you hear about Clarence's new job? They paying him $8 an hour just to snitch on Dr. King. It's a good government job. So, Mike, after you just heard that, here's my question. How much does it cost to sell your moral principles? Because that's what Carmichael did. And the number was $500,000 and a career boost. The difference between him and everybody else and the rest of society is that he's transparent about it. We are him we constantly selling out our morals we are constantly selling out our beliefs we're all a bunch of hypocrites we will all take the money before morals well, i can see you got out on, on the right side of the bed this morning. <laughs> i just, just think we should normalize it at this point he's normalizing it why shouldn't we all i don't know that he's normalizing it so much as he's contextualizing it you see i think there's varying degrees here. I have a lot of thoughts on this. Before this episode, we talked about the, the topics we want to talk about. I feel there are three aspects of culture we're talking about here in this episode. Cultural appropriation, cultural compromise, which is what I think is going on with Gerard Carmichael, and cultural erasure. So coming back to that now, one of the movies that's been getting a lot of love this season is a movie called RRR. Do you know not to? What is Nazi? It's an unabashed Bollywood, big budget Bollywood film. And the, the premise is about two people who are on different sides. And the, it's during when the British are colonizing India. And one character is coming from his village to save a little girl who's been taken literally as a slave by these rich white military commander's wife and his family in the palace in India. The other guy is working for the National Guard, and he's practically a superhero. He's amazing. But you wonder, why is he working for the British government? And it's like the characters like the type that Sam Jackson played in uh, Django, where like there are always these people who will betray their own people, who are considered traitors by their people. Judas. The Judas, exactly. But in the movie, you find out he has another agenda. And similarly, I feel Gerard Carmichael is someone who you could see as a traitor. He's doing it in the blackface for these white people. But he's being honest about it. He's saying, no, full transparency. I respect full transparency. And to me, like in that movie, RRR, I think that Gerard Carmichael has an agenda. And part of his agenda was to address it. Part of his agenda was to just be upfront about it. And it only amplifies his career. He knows, look, just like Jack Rico said, Jack Rico probably wouldn't have even watched the Golden Globes, but okay, they have a black host. What's he going to say? Who, what, what the hell is he doing? I need to see this. I need to see if this is addressed or not. I need to see 
what this black person is doing up there representing this organization that has spent 79 years without one black member. Listen, man, not sure if you remember wrestling, WWE, there was a famous wrestler by the name of Ted DiBiase, the million dollar man. And he always used to say, money isn't everything. It's the only thing. And everyone, everyone has a price for the million dollar man. (laughs) Everyone has a price. When I saw that monologue, Mike, I don't know what else to say. He was the avatar for all humankind. He was the avatar for all humankind. Money's what makes the world go round. Not morals, Mike. Not beliefs and religion and God and I want to be a great person and... No. This is who we are. Transactional people from the moment of agriculture that we were exchanging and trading. And what do you think America and the whole world and civilization is if it's not just a trading culture? That's what we do. We trade. How much you giving me? 500000 Oh, well, that's a different story. Yeah, yeah, yeah. My morals have a number. 500 Gs. There's no better explanation of the type of people we are. Then just look at the standing ovation that Will Smith got after he slapped Chris Rock, which to this day still makes my stomach turn. Those people stood up there clapping this man that had just violated a criminal act. It was was assault. And what pisses me the most is that NBC turns a blind eye now because I'm not sure if you saw the New York Times article that Brooks Barnes wrote that said that the ceremony, that the reason that NBC still has the ceremony, it's because it's still important for movie studios. Number one, they get to promote their films on a national stage for two, three hours. And then any movie that wins a Golden Globe usually makes an extra almost $17 million in ticket sales, Mike. Where is the credibility of artistic excellence of this show? Everything about the show on a societal, cultural context was disgusting to me. Beginning with Gerard Carmichael selling out his morals for money. And then NBC looking away and saying, listen, man, we're, we're, we're promoting movies. We got a movie studio. We work in the movie industry. We kind of need the show. So screw the artistic credibility of anything. And that is what this whole award show has represented to me, man. Every relationship is transactional, okay? That's that's the bottom line. So I have an argument for and against listening to what you're saying. On the one hand, that's what Gerard Carmichael said. He said he's here because he he feels these people in this room that he's, you know, admired deserve the recognition they get. And, yeah, it's the films, it's the TV show, or whatever. But it's not the people, Mike. It's the platform. Let me finish. Because not only will the movie make more money, you got to remember, for the actors, if they win, you know, Kihi Kwan. When I started my career as a child actor in Indiana Jones and the Temple of Doom, I felt, I felt so very lucky to have been chosen. As I grew older... I started to wonder if that was it, if, if that was just luck. For so many years, I was afraid that I had nothing more to offer, uh, that no matter what I did, I would, I would never surpass what I achieved as a kid. Thankfully, 
more than 30 years later, two guys thought of me. They remembered that kid. And they gave me an opportunity to try again. Like, okay, now he can work. The other side of that, the other side of this coin is that the artistic integrity hopefully is what's on screen and film and television. But the question really is, who's going to acknowledge that artistic integrity? Who's going to acknowledge that you're great? The industry, the, the Hollywood Press, Foreign Press Association, the, the, the Academy, if they acknowledge that you're great, now others in the industry will say, okay, well, they won a Golden Globe. They won an Oscar. They won a whatever. They, they, that's something that we can market now when we, and something we can consider when we're casting. The artistic integrity is there, but the question really is who acknowledges that integrity? How do you, you know, you're doing great work, but unless you win that Golden Globe. I mean, if you want to go down that route, Mike, then let's just talk about some of the good things that it does and that I'll, I'll agree with. Here's what I agree with. Number one, I do think they're a great promoter of brand new talent. I think, you know, what it did with Gina Rodriguez, it transformed her career by winning a Golden Globe. I'll say that the Globes are good to promote movies, but outside of talent and maybe getting the word or about a particular movie or a particular performance, that's as probably good as it is. I don't think that the Golden Globes are for us, Mike. I don't no, think they're the meant for the viewer. I think they're meant for themselves, and they shouldn't televise it. And if they televise it, they should say, hey, this isn't art. This is just a business, and it's a fucking party that we're throwing for ourselves. But because we're the one percenters, we can just put on a camera. And if you want to watch in like a voyeur, then go ahead. But that's not what's told to us. And a lot of us interpret the Globes and its history as a prestigious event, uh, artistic excellence, the markers of credibility. And that's not what this is. So you know what? The Golden Globes, all they are is a business, plain and simple. It is in the validation business, because you said it. If in 79 years they had no black members, right? So it's a bunch of white people saying, oh, we can pick this person, they're worth it, they're worth it. So any person of color that ever won was getting white validated by the Golden Globes. And that's what was laid bare. Mm. And now, literally, literally, they put on blackface so that they have a black presenter and then some people of color win. We don't look so fucking bad. Since we've been talking, like I said, about the three cultural crimes that the three C's, the three C's, uh, uh -huh. we, we covered cultural compromise and could be argued that that's what Gerard Carmichael is doing. And, and we just have to see what he does with this $500,000. Because I want to ask you, Jack, did you host it for $500,000? Would you host the Golden Globes? By yeah. Okay. Yeah. This I'm not true. hiding anything. What I'm saying is that there's so many people that morality and the, there's a number that they will compromise their morality for. Uh, you know, that is not 
really arguable. Now, what about Gwen Stefani? We've been talking about Gwen Stefani. And again, I'm just going to admit here, I could care less about Gwen Stefani. <laughs> I'm, I'm like, I'm, I could care less. I'm not a fan. Yeah, and anything. we don't necessarily like talking about white celebrities yeah, on yeah, the show. I, I, yeah, but not, there's a specific not, purpose. But for the specific purpose is not just cultural appropriation, which many artists do. Now, let, let me set this up to say, Harajuku culture, it, it's, it's a thing. It's a thing in Japan. First of all, there's actually a group called the Harajuku Girls. But Harajuku is a cultural thing. And Gwen Stefani, like a lot of artists do, fell in love with it. Fell in love with the style, what it was all about, the music, everything. Fell in love with it. And if you ever go back and look at this video that she got roasted for by Asian press at the time, she literally is in the center and these, these, these Japanese women are bowing to her. And, and there's all these images of, again, what you could call white supremacy. Okay? Mm. But it's not just white supremacy. It's not just that these Japanese girls are bowing to her. But here she is hijacking their culture, making big money from it. People don't even know who those girls in the videos were. But the point being that at the time, you know, she, she, she defended it. But now she's not just defending it. Now she's doubling down. <laughs> doubling down and saying, I am Japanese. Now, for what that could possibly mean, I have to say, and you've heard me say before, we're in the age of lying and we lie to ourselves. We lie to each other. Speaking of lying, we could just say the name George Santos, but lying, you can get rewarded for lying. We live in a different age. It's not just like, oh, he lied. She lied. Oh, you know, they did this thing. It happened with Aquafina and Aquafina again, doubled down. She doesn't want to acknowledge that she culturally appropriated black culture and, and it launched her career. Okay. It made her. I feel it is something at some point there has to be a reckoning or an accounting. And just like the, the cultural compromise, there's a line like, okay, Gerard Carmichael took the money, but he was honest about it. He, he feel it. But, but you look at somebody like he calls himself Yi. That's all I have to say. That's, that's going like the whole other direction. Paul Simon can make an album about how, you know, he was inspired by all these African artists and, and then help acknowledge them and then they have careers and they go Peter Gabriel with Yusu Endor. I mean, there are other artists, more recent pop artists who have done the same thing where they take something, make money on it, but don't want to acknowledge what they've done. Well, isn't that the the pure definition of cultural appropriation? Yes, Taking a culture that is yes, not is. yours, like Japanese, Gwen Stefani, yep. and then profiting off of it, a uh, album, a sound, event performance with choreography influenced by that culture and make all that money that comes along with that usage of that other culture that isn't yours. Now, I'm not sure if you knew that her father used to travel to Japan and Tokyo all the time. Yes. And that she used to go there and that visiting Japan so much influenced her view right. of the world. And so on one hand, it could look like I'm stealing from it. I'm appropriating it. But on the other hand, I could say I'm just sharing my love for it. Now, it uh, depends on the receiver of that information and how they interpret that information and the context around it, which will always be subjective, Mike. And I get it. I get when, when Gwen Stefani says, hey, 
we're all influenced by different cultures. And it's not bad that when you fall in love with one of them, that you want to just show your appreciation. This is exactly the same exact issue that happened with Hilaria Baldwin. And the same thing happened with, with uh, Rosalia, with the bachata. Yeah. These people that leave America, fall in love with something non-American, and then come back to America, and then just share that love. But indirectly, they're also creating a byproduct of profit that they don't recognize they might not be aware of it, but hell, that's the perception and the optics. So let me give you an analogy because I do understand what Gwen Stefani is saying. The argument is, imagine you're a Japanese chef, all right? And you discovered, I don't know, adobo goya seasoning. And you want to create a new dish and you add it to the menu because it's so damn delicious. And everybody who's tasted this Japanese chef's dish that he put adobo sason on is now a hit, Mike. Would that fit for you the definition or the criteria of cultural appropriation? Well, you see... Because he is using another culture's product to profit for his restaurant, right? I'll I'll say this, because you bring up a, a bigger picture issue for me by asking me, okay... I feel that I'm not qualified to answer that. Okay, I feel like why not? That should be because it's not my culture being appropriated. I also think, and this is just, and this is a, only a slight sidebar. This is a particular thing I particularly don't like, and and I know, I, I don't know how much the the Latino community has these kind of interactions with white people who tell you what you should be offended by. Okay. Mm. So, so I have an issue with telling someone what they should be offended by. I may think that it is uh, cultural appropriation, but a Latino may say to me, no, dude, no. If you knew the history of Saison, they would know the blah, 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 blah. And I go, oh, all right. I was wrong. I thought it was cultural appropriation. It was right. I would say the only person who can answer that is someone Latino. Okay, and well, I that's me. Like cultural appropriation should be defined by the culture it's being appropriated. Listen, I, I don't have a problem. I'm, I'm letting you know. I'm the Latino guy in, in this conversation, okay? So I'm letting you know. But I just wanted to hear your perspective from a black that's, man. That's my, pers- my perspective. Okay, is- your perspective is like, yo, I don't, I don't, no comment. I plead the fifth. Because <laughs> that's what you're doing, Mike. So leave what? it on to I'm me. I'm not the one. And evade the question. No, I'm not evading. You're evading it. I'm not evading. I'm telling you how I look at it. Hypothetically, Mike. Hypothetically. I I don't feel necessarily adding uh, uh, mixing. I mean, I see see art. I mean, see art. I see cooking and all of that as as a, uh, it is something that that is an art. And it is something that, you know, you learn new dishes or, you know, there are many dishes we equate with one culture that they actually appropriated much earlier from another culture. If you look at the history and it became known more known in this culture, you know, and and there are a number of like pizza was not invented by the Italians, things like that. But at the same time, I think, like you said, it's a very complex issue. I think that that it is something I couldn't just blanket. I would need to understand the context, but I think it is easy for that to go somewhere for a a restaurant to then go uh, let's say someone this happens who, everywhere mike i was gonna say it, it is easy for that to 
veer right into cultural appropriation. I wouldn't say one dish does it, but it's like a gateway. I don't necessarily agree with Gwen Stefani's stance as the only stance on it. To me, she lacks the understanding of how the power dynamics are at play here. She's a white woman. She has the privilege of being able to profit from, take elements of another culture that she does not belong to, except that she doesn't have to face the same consequences and discrimination that people of that culture do. She makes money while the people that she was riffing from don't get a dime except blown kisses. So that is the problem that I have with her saying that I'm Japanese. Now, if you want to argue, well, listen, I didn't mean to say I'm literally Japanese, but I feel Japanese because of my upbringing and my closeness to that culture. I kind of get it because for me, Mike, when you are in love with something so much, art is probably for a creator, it's the only way you can express it. And then when you're a pop artist like her, she's a global pop artist, she can get away with it. And none of us can say anything. How many times, Mike, have you been to an Asian fusion restaurant? How many times have you mishmashed, I don't know, music, movies, stories, food, languages? This whole world mishmashes everything. This whole world appropriates everything. The United States Constitution. The original Constitution was not original. It was based off of an Iroquois Indian tribe that had done their constitution. That's what that's based on. We're all either, everything is derivative. Nothing is original. And then if you're an artist, you're trying to inspire yourself outside of what you're doing. The art in what you could argue that she's doing is, she's taking that Japanese culture, but she's making it so palatable that it connects with the world. Dude, no, dude, fuck Gwen Stefani, fuck that shit. Let me just tell you something. The, the issue that they had back then with her, and you can, you can look this up, uh, I'm saying this for listeners. It, there was a Time Magazine story that did a whole thing on it. And the reason Asian women were so upset, the Harajuku girls were, were a band. She had them as her backup dancers. Or, yeah. yeah, her backup band. But, and she renamed them. Like they were pets, Love, Angel, Music, and Baby. Okay, after her album title, right? The way they were treated, the way they were represented, did nothing to empower uh, Japanese women. Sure, did she now, like, you never heard of uh, the Harajuku girls until Gwen Stefani appropriated them. But there, there are ways in which to do it where you can be culturally sensitive, where you take time, like Paul Simon did, and you, and you really elevate them, or there are ways where they can become a prop. And, and, and a vehicle and something you can use. Some, some oh, I, I heard this bachata and I'm going to do one. And then they're not going to even bring a, a Dominican artist up and do it. Now, should people be called out on that? I think they should. I agree with you a thousand percent. Everything is derivative, dude. I even did a show called Everything is Derivative. I'm with you a thousand percent. Music is always influenced. If you have to 
do a score that takes place in India and you're like, you know, a white composer, you have to culturally appropriate to create the music for that. Or you could work with a, a local musician or you could bring in or you could use source music. You have a lot of choices when you're creating art on how you incorporate other cultures and how you appropriate. And I feel that there are good ways to do it and they're bad. Here's the last thing I'm going to say on this, Mike. When yep. people from a dominant culture appropriate another culture, it keeps the power in balance in place. And it makes 100%. it seem like the only value of that culture, it's when it's being consumed by others. Jack, coming back to our final segment here, because we talk about cultural compromise, cultural appropriation, cultural erasure. Now, we live in this age where everything's about pronouns and, and, and whether you are she, Labels, he, they, or them. You know, so everybody's all about being called something. The name you have for yourself, you have your, you know, depending on your religion, you may have your baptismal name. You may have mm -hmm. your, your, your this name, your, your whatever name. You have a middle name, you know, people, names and, and what you call yourselves. And I can just say, as in what is called today an African-American, a hundred years ago, I'd have been called a Negro, all right, or, or a Negra, depending on where you go. Or uh, later on, I would have been called maybe an Afro-American. And now it's African-American. So I feel that people, culture should be able to name themselves. I, I didn't have this perspective till someone forget from which Spanish-speaking country, but I work at a company that produces podcasts and, and I sit in on all the pitches for stories. And one of the stories I pitched was just exploring the word alien and, and, and what that word does, you know, illegal alien. If you're from another country, it's not that you come here, you're ever called an alien. Mm -hmm. and, and they said, well, how are aliens portrayed on film? Like they're scary, they're here to take over the planet. So <laughs> the whole idea of calling an alien an alien, yeah. It, there's a lot of power in words, in you deciding how to identify yourself. And I also have to say, you take any census form, that whole term from my understanding of what, how they lump together uh, anybody that speaks Spanish in this country, and, and they still ask me on every form, are you this? Do you speak Spanish? I don't even know why. They just ask. So what do you think of Sarah Huckabee and, and potentially others? wanting to ban the term Latinx. Listen, man, th this is an what? executive order, Mike. And as you know, executive orders are joke laws. It's nothing, to me, it's nothing more than political posturing. She can't codify that into law. Uh, she can't. She would have a free speech issue from the moment she does it and lose the case. It's part of the First Amendment. People can name themselves. You can't. That's a form of censorship, in my opinion. And I get it. She's going with statistics, which can be flipped on a dime anytime you want to fit it into your narrative. But her argument is that 3% of Latinos use it and that La Real Academia Española Dictionary, which, by the way, is the king's official book of Spain, 
they don't accept X's. It's either Latina or Latina. Like, who created that book? Corruptible men that are constantly evolving language. So for you not to ever evolve those two words, Latina and Latina, and add an X to it, it's archaic. 4% of the eligible voting population in Arkansas is Hispanic. Four, Mike. So you think they give two hoots about it? 76% of Hispanics have never heard of the word Latinx. Do you think they give two hoots that Sarah Huckabee banned Latinx? It's like, why don't you just ban uh, this pocket of air here on the corner? You said this posturing. I agree. But why bother? What fucking posture is that? What, because what is it the makes point? it seem that according to her campaign, she was campaigning on this for, for Latin Republicans, for the Trumpsters. They're like, fuck Latinx. That's not, I'm Latino or Latina. And these trans people, these aliens, uh, they want to now take over the way I describe myself. No, 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 no. That's why she gives an executive order. It's a joke law. It's not going to hold, Mike. So that's why I particularly don't take this seriously. And I don't think it's going to go anywhere. Well, that's it for this episode of Brown and Black. If you would like to support this podcast, please subscribe and leave a review. Your help will allow us to be heard by many more people. This episode was edited by Joshua Tirado. You can follow our comments and opinions on at Brown Black Podcast on Twitter, Instagram, and now on YouTube. We'll see you on the next episode of Brown and Black. Thank you.